I'm Paul Kennedy, and this is Ideas About the Origins of the Modern Public. In the early 1500s, Europe was in the throes of a media revolution, brought on by the invention of the printing press. Its effects were felt in every domain. In religion, the laity gained access to the Bible and began to interpret it for themselves. They've separated themselves from a the corporate structure of the church that used to give them their identity. They were part of a common Christendom. Now their salvation, their sense of themselves, depends on their own understanding of particular passages in the Bible. Popular culture was transformed by the wider reach of printed texts, like the broadside sheets from which people sang ballads in early modern England. People are pulling out ballads. You hear stories all the time, someone pulling a ballad out and a crowd gathering around and they start singing it. And that same ballad is moving all around London and out into the provinces. And it couldn't do that if it wasn't being printed by the hundreds of thousands. And that's what print allows, this mass marketing. Printing also gave people access to more sophisticated forms of music, like Venetian printer Ottaviano Petrucci's books of motet scores. What the Petrucci motet prints do is they suddenly make available to these people who want this music but don't have the skills to copy it. They can now just go into a print shop in Venice and buy it and take it home and sing it with their friends. Finally, wide distribution of printed images affected identities as people began to locate themselves in relation to a wider world. If you were Venetian, you could compare yourself to somebody from Antwerp or to Cologne, and you could kind of start to think about a relationship that we would now call global as opposed to being something that was local. Today on Ideas, we explore the print revolution in early modern Europe and the ways in which the circulation of printed words, notes, and images engendered new forms of public life. The program continues our series, The Origins of the Modern Public. It's presented by Ideas producer David Cayley. The public, in contemporary usage, means everyone. The public good is the good of all. The public opinion is the general opinion. But in the 16th century, at the beginning of the modern age, that was not what public meant at all. Then, what made something public was its status. Officials of the state and persons of noble birth were public by virtue of their rank and station. Their publicness was a personal attribute, not something they derived from the people, but something they displayed before the people. How our contemporary conception of the public got its first footholds in this older world is the question that animates the research project on which I've based this series. The project is called Making Publics, Media, Markets, and Association in Early Modern Europe, 1500 to 1700. And it involves an interdisciplinary team of early modern scholars drawn from universities all over North America. It's their hypothesis that long before there was any conception of a general public, open to general participation, there were individual publics. 
These were voluntary groupings that began to assemble around objects of shared interest or concern. They might have been naturalists with a common interest in classifying plants, prosperous burghers wanting to announce their social arrival by having a portrait painted, or people who went regularly to the theater. They might know each other, they might not. That was part of what made this form of association novel and characteristically modern. It could involve strangers, related only by a common inclination. What was critical was that this new pattern of relationship was based on interest and affinity rather than status and subordination. And because of this, the theory goes, it changed the way that social space was imagined and in time changed society until, finally, a general public could be conceived. These scholars don't claim, of course, that this new phenomenon suddenly dropped from the sky in 1500. Few things in history can be assigned such absolute beginnings, but they do believe that the formation of publics intensified and accelerated in a remarkable way around this time. And one of the reasons was the new printing press invented by Johannes Gutenberg around 1440. Publics are creatures of media. They depend on the available means of communication. And Gutenberg's press was, arguably, the first mass medium. Within 50 years of its invention, the printing trade had established itself in more than 200 European cities and towns, and an estimated 20 million books were already in print. Richard Helgerson is one of the literary scholars whose work inspired the Making Publics project, and he was one of its founding members. Unhappily, he became ill shortly after the project began, and he died at the age of 67 in the fall of 2008. A year before his death, he spoke to me from a radio studio at the University of California at Santa Barbara, where he taught for nearly 40 years, and he talked about the relationship between printing and publics. Print, like radio or like television or like the Internet, gave rise not to just one public, but to many, many publics, and some of them were extraordinarily important. Perhaps the most important, given the uh, centrality of religion to uh, early modern life, uh, life in the 16th and 17th centuries, was the public for religious materials and especially the vernacular Bible, which only became available in the 16th century and was quickly printed and spread. And many, many groups arose around the Bible. That is, they would buy a copy of the Bible in a community. People would get together and uh, read it. This uh, touched the very edges of literacy. The illiterate could join such groups as well as the uh, literate. There was great resistance on the part of the state and the church to uh, the spread of the vernacular Bible, but it seemed irresistible. It had a great deal to do with the Protestant Reformation. Luther himself, of course, translated the Bible into German. There were English translations, and uh, that public of Bible readers became um, particularly conspicuous in England uh, at the mid-century when Mary Tudor assumed the throne and tried to uh, 
take England back into the Catholic fold. Uh, the very possession of a uh, vernacular Bible was considered suspect. Uh, many of these Bible readers were interrogated. Uh, many of them went to the stake. But it's quite remarkable when you read these interrogations to see how vital the participation in this uh, public was to these people. That is, it was something that they were um, finally willing to go to their deaths for. So it was a matter of enormous importance and continued to be uh, when Elizabeth came to the throne and uh, there was a settlement of the English church. Uh, there were nevertheless continuing nonconformist groups that formed themselves around their own uh, reading of the Bible, which gave them a new sense of themselves, a new sense of their own authority, and a much reduced sense of the authority of the ecclesiastical establishment. So that's one particularly potent example of a 16th century public formed in response to a new medium and the availability through that medium of works that had simply not been available before. There was, after all, no vernacular Bible prior to the early decades of the 16th century that, um, that anyone could have read. Richard Helgerson developed a number of examples for me of how new publics grew up in the 16th century. Another reading public was the one that gathered around the printed maps that became widely available later in that century. Others, like the theater public, were drawn together by live performance. And finally, citing the work of his colleague Anne Birmingham, he mentioned a new public for amateur drawing. Amateur drawing really wasn't uh, practiced uh, much prior to the 16th century. Castiglione, in his book of the Courtier, calls on gentlemen to learn to draw and make that, along with music and poetry and dancing and horseback riding and so on, swordsmanship, uh, part of the acquisitions, uh, the vital acquisitions of the courtier. But it isn't uh, something that had been practiced uh, much before. And over the next couple of centuries, the practice of amateur drawing spread enormously all over uh, Europe, particularly uh, by the 18th century. And again, the new medium of print was vital to that. Uh, there were how-to-do-it books, books of instruction, uh, pattern books. For example, one sub-area of uh, amateur drawing that developed enormously in the 18th century, particularly among women, was flower drawing. Uh, and there were pattern books uh, uh, to give you an idea how to do uh, flower drawing. Now, if you put uh, amateur drawing next to Bible reading, next to map reading, these are obviously very, very different publics. But each one of them uh, developed in an extraordinary way and uh, deeply involved the people who were uh, part of it, changed them, their idea of themselves, changed their sense of their own identity, their own relationship to the world in important ways. Uh, many of the women who, uh, who became amateur artists uh, in watercolors and pencil drawings developed scientific interests that went along with their drawing and led to contributions of a significant sort to uh, botanical interest. Drawing, an interest in maps, 
a way of interpreting the Bible, a habit of going to the theater. These are not things that necessarily generate well-defined face-to-face communities. Members of a local society interested in drawing or mapping might all know one another, but they would also identify with a wider, less definite group of like-minded people in other places. And this new sense of identity, Richard Helgerson says, could be very strong. A striking example for him is the Protestant martyrs burned at the stake when Queen Mary restored the Roman Catholic Church in England in the 1550s. It's quite incredible when you read the interrogations I've referred to before that you can find in, uh, particularly in uh, John Fox's books of martyrs of those um, semi-literate, sometimes illiterate uh, Bible readers, ordinary working men, women, uh, often, how powerfully they represent themselves and their beliefs, how uh, strongly individual they are in in that sense. That is, uh, they've separated themselves from a the corporate structure of the church that used to give them their identity. They were part of a common Christendom, and their identity melded into that of everyone else who was a part of that common Christendom. Now, their salvation, their sense of themselves, depends on their own understanding of particular passages in the Bible, uh, so that they can talk back even to a um, an ecclesiastic superior, a bishop who's interrogating them and um, who asks them about the real presence in uh, in the communion, in the Mass, and they can say, that's not in the Bible, and they can say that on the basis of their own reading. That's a powerful sense of individuality. And something like that uh, went on in other areas as well. Uh, I've talked about the the maps. When you look at a map, you're looking, uh, particularly a map of your own country, you're looking at a at a description, a, a visual description of your country. But you're also looking at yourself. There's a sense in which uh, that map is a mirror, in which you see yourself in a new way, and you have a, a new identity that develops from that. Theater going has that sort of effect on people as they identify with the characters that they see in the plays. And plays gave uh, their audiences, the members of their public, different ways of being in the world. And that uh, availability of different ways of being in the world has a lot to do with the development of individual identities. Richard Helgerson says, people saw themselves in new ways. This is also the view of Bronwyn Wilson, another member of the Making Publics Research Group and a professor of art history at the University of British Columbia. Her first book was called The World in Venice, Print, the City, and Early Modern Identity. It explores, among other things, the way printed maps affected Venetians. People 
through print culture, we're able to see a number of images often. So even if you were a Venetian and you weren't likely to buy a, Vene a map of Venice because you already knew the city, you would go by shop windows, you would see the maps, you would become kind of aware of them. And this was something that you would have seen reproduced in multiples. So these are images that are widely available. They are many kind of printed maps were less expensive than buying a globe. This was a kind of new technology that provided accessibility to to new forms of imagery by many different people. And the more you see something, the more it will kind of organize the ways in which you understand your relationship to the world. So in Venice, this is a city, like many cities in Europe, where your relationship as an individual to the city would have been organized previously around ideas such as your family name, the parish to which you belong, um, what your class was, whether you were a, a noble person, whether you were a cittadino, which is um, the citizen class in Venice, or whether you were a popolano, which is the essentially almost everybody. And so those kinds of categories of identity were something that print culture, I think, starts to put some pressure on, in part because you start to think about your relationship not just to your parish and your family and to your, your status, but more broadly, you start to think about the city as a whole. And what's kind of interesting about printed maps is that there's often forms of imagery that would include printed maps of other cities. For example, there's a, a map of Italy that has on the sides of it and on the bottom maps of very small maps of different cities in Italy. So if you were a Venetian, you'd be able to compare your city to other cities and start to kind of think about your relationship to Venice no longer just in terms of what neighborhood you were from, but instead from the kind of whole peninsula of of Italy. And that was something that people started to do more broadly in terms of European cities. There was books with uh, cities that were published where you could compare, if you were Venetian, you could compare yourself to somebody from Antwerp or to Cologne, and you could kind of start to think about really a, um, a relationship that we would now call global as opposed to being something that was local. So in that sense, I think that they had a large impact in terms of the ways that people understood the relationship to spaces. Venice by the early 16th century had become one of the main centers of printing in Europe. Actual numbers are only guesses, but by conservative estimate, there were around 150 printers in business by 1500. Other sources say there were as many as 400. Bronwyn Wilson has been particularly interested in the books of images produced by these printers. Maps were one popular genre. Another was the costume book. These would have printed images of costumes of people from around the world, in many cases, on different pages. And so you could flip through these books almost like an atlas, and you could compare the costumes of people from, you could compare the costumes of, of people who were in Spain to people who were in Italy to people who were in France. And so again, there's a way that you start to think about how what you wear in some ways is different from what people wear somewhere else. And so there's a this kind of increasing ability to start to think about who who one is through what one wears in relation to other geographical areas. And this is tied into the ways in which Europeans un 
kind of interpreted each other during the 15th and 16th century. That is, if you were to meet strangers in the Piazza San Marco, you would be immediately aware of where that person was from based on what he or she was wearing. You would know whether the woman was a virgin, whether she was married, whether she was a widow. You would know if it was a trader, a merchant from Germany, or whether it was a, a Muslim from uh, North Africa or from Persia. Their kind of perception of the world was very closely tied to costume. There's a kind of long history of that even in the in the Middle Ages. And costume books kind of sharpen those skills of discrimination around around clothes. And because they're geographically organized, they're linked to maps as a mode of of kind of cataloging the world. And in particular, I think, kind of reorganizing the ways in which identities were understood. It's something which was, I think, really interesting because it's not like fashion magazines now. It's not like you would look and think someone from Venice is going to look at someone from Spain and say, oh, I really like that neck ruff. I'm going to you know, try and find one the next time in the market. Instead, I think it works in a kind of a reverse order. At least this is what I've argued, is that costume was a way of trying to kind of circumscribe identities and to constrain individuals to categories that were important to the city. So you have these kind of new civic identities that emerge in relation to costume that kind of overlap in some ways with, with an interest in, in maps of cities as well. Maps of other places, or pictures of foreign costumes, work, Bronwyn Wilson says, to constrain identities. A knowledge of the cities of Germany or the costumes of Spain, makes you more aware of yourself as Venetian. Definition depends on contrast and comparison, and books provided a rich source of comparisons by which people could learn to distinguish themselves and discriminate amongst others. The overall effect, she thinks, was individualizing. I think that this is something that's participating in a new form of subjectivity that is a way of reconceptualizing the self in relation to the city, in relation to the world, in relation to other faces. And it's a process of starting to kind of see oneself in images, to start to think and in fact, one of the most interesting forms of evidence that we have for this as a kind of social practice is that in Venice, there are inventories that show that there was images, printed images, of Roman emperors in households on the wall. And people would have not just Roman images, but also portraits as well. And people would often have mirrors on the wall, and they would be able to kind of look at an image of a Roman emperor and then see themselves in a mirror and be able to kind of reflect on themselves and compare their faces to the faces that they would see on the wall. So it's a kind of process of kind of reflecting on one's own identity because you're starting to compare all of these other individuals. This process of individualization, in Bronwyn Wilson's view, was a function of the number of images people saw. As in our world, where communication technologies, when they reach a certain intensity, begin to create an environment, printed images had their effect by constant reiteration. A single image isn't going to change the way in which we understand ourselves, right? The 
claims that I'm making about the ways that images alter identities is through repetition, that there's many of these, and that those images overlap with other kinds of social practices. It's something that I would never want to say that the image itself has that capacity. It's something that's a part of a process that affects you through repetition. But what I do think is really important in terms of the relationship between perspective, print, as two new technologies, during a period in which there was this kind of global reorganization, is that Venetians, and I would say that that my claim is that that's the case also for Europeans more widely, started to be more of more aware of the fact that they were seen by others. They started to be more aware of the fact that they were themselves representations that other people could see. So more aware of the, the kind of representational weight of their bodies in space. So there's a, a sense of being seen by others in a way that I think is, is important. And the, the prints kind of participate in that development. So it's a kind of constellation of those issues that participate in a kind of evolving subjectivity. You're listening to Ideas on CBC Radio 1, on Sirius Satellite Radio 137, and cbc.ca. Our program is called The Origins of the Modern Public, and it's presented by David Cayley. What Bronwyn Wilson calls print culture was pervasive in early modern Europe and not just in books. In England, the most popular item by far was the broadside ballad, a single illustrated sheet with a ballad printed in a Gothic typeface called black letter. Patricia Fummerton is a member of the Making Public's research group and the director of the English Broadside Ballad Archive at the University of California at Santa Barbara, where she's professor of English. She says that in the 16th and 17th centuries, the broadside ballad was the movies, the tabloid newspaper, and the popular song all rolled into one. In the heyday of the ballad, which is the 1620s to 1650s, you'd have four woodcuts, a big sheet of black letter, a tune everybody could sing. So you've got, you've got a piece of art here that you can stick up on your wall with some paste, glue and water. So that's your oil painting. You've got a song that you can, everybody can sing. They gather around the bell and you all just sing the text because you know the tune. And, and you've got a text um, that people can look at and read, um, either as a group, not out loud, or individually at home. So you've got this multimedia artifact, cultural artifact. And then it capitalizes on that by addressing just about any topic you can imagine. There is no topic you could name. The latest crime that happened, the whale that turned up on the Thames washed ashore, how London's overcrowded, landlords are charging too much rent, or they're raising the price of corn. Widows are better to marry than young women. There are lots of widows in the early 17th century because of the wars. Or widows are really bad to marry. Um, because, you know, they're old and they're haggard and they've got opinions of their own. So you'll have bells actually that come out on opposite positions, issued maybe by the same press or the same author. 
um, because they're mass marketed, they're mass disseminated um, by the millions, and everybody would have heard them. In what Patricia Fummerton calls their heyday in the early 17th century, there were thousands of ballads in print, and the total number of copies in circulation likely numbered in the millions. One of the places they were commonly sung was the alehouse. People would brew ale in their homes and sell it. And they'd stick out a stake with a bush on it, and that would be a sign that you're selling your ale. So that's the lowest level sort of drinking establishment. They can be holes in the walls. They can be the one bedroom of your one bedroom house <laughs> where you just start opening up the doors, letting people in. The next level up is the tavern, which would sell wine as well as beer or ale and also some food. And then there's the inn where you could spend the night as well. So the ale houses are, the they're like bows. They're the lowest common denominator place that pretty much anybody can go to because they can afford it, where you can get um, the equivalent of like a quart of beer for a halfpenny. And beer or ale back then was the equivalent of food. People drank as the equivalent of eating. So, I mean, you would go and maybe you would drink your lunch. It was made from corn, and they didn't trust the water because the water was contaminated in the period, which is why ale was so important to the common people. Um, the Thames was polluted, the rivers were polluted. We, they're actually less polluted now than they were in the Renaissance. So an alehouse is this makeshift place. They come, they go, just like ballads come and go. They're transient. Um, and uh, they're places where people gather spontaneously, um, just like they gather spontaneously around ballads. Ballads, traditionally, were a story and song, like the familiar tales of Robin Hood. The broadside ballad enlarged this definition and could include current events, social commentary, religious issues, or reports of marvels and monstrosities. One popular topic, Patricia Fummerton says, was the place where they were so often sung. There's a lot of alehouse ballads, ballads about being in the alehouses, and they often juxtapose or put in opposition the alehouse and the house house where the wife is and the kids are. And there are a lot of alehouse poems where the wife is begging the husband not to go off to the alehouse and spend all their money. But he says, I'm going to go. You can't make me do what I want. don't want to do. Um, I don't want to stay here anymore. You're trying to push me around. And then you get these songs of the guys calling out each other's names and kissing the, the jug. And it's a very homosocial experience, sort of like football, you know, slapping the bottom. And, <laughs> and women were allowed in alehouses, but if a woman went to an alehouse without a man, she would be considered loose. So, unless she was with a group of other women. But if she went alone, she would be considered a prostitute. Ballads were the entertainment of ordinary folk, but they were also popular with the elite. One notable ballad collector, for example, was Samuel Pepys, the famous diarist, member of parliament, and chief secretary of the Admiralty under Charles II and James II. He collected and catalogued nearly 1,800 broadside ballads, now housed in the Pepys Library at Magdalen College in Cambridge. 
one of the purposes of Patricia Fummerton's Broadside Ballot Archive has been to make facsimiles available online. And Pepys didn't just collect ballots. He sometimes lived them. Samuel Pepys is courting this actress, Elizabeth Knepp, and she sings Barbara Allen for him. And then he tries to meet up with her at a party later on, and she's not there, but she sends a letter to him and signs it from Barbara Allen. And so he writes back to her the next day a letter, and he signs it Dapper Dickey. Both of those are ballads. They're, they're ballads about love. And so they're inhabiting the roles of the, sing, of the songs in order to play a, a love game, which is one of the things that ballads allowed you to do. They allowed you to play games, to inhabit roles, and anybody who knows anything about love ballads would immediately recognize what they were up to when they say Dapper Dicky. Very popular Scotch ballad, as was Barbara Allen. Patricia Fummerton believes that the printed broadsides that she studies are the source of many songs that are still known today, like Barbara Allen or Barbary Allen, which has been recorded by everyone from Pete Seeger to the Grateful Dead. But in the Romantic era, she says, when collectors began looking for folk traditions that were uncontaminated by commerce or writing, the actual origin of these traditions was often overlooked. In the 18th century, they start being, this whole myth comes out that the real ballad is only oral, and they put down the, the printed ballads of the 17th century as one of the most famous collector uh, or editor of ballads in the 19th century child, he called them um, dunghills. And the real ballad is the oral ballad, of the communal ballad that minstrels would sing. And it's this myth that there were these minstrels that were being uh, funded by great lords who would sing the culture of the people. And it's absolute nonsense. The real ballads, black letter ballads, printed ballads, they were not dunghills to the people, although the upper class always put them down as, you know, low literature. But they bought them. They listened to them. They knew them. Shakespeare quotes ballads in every single play he writes. So he knew them. He heard them. And he may put them down, but he knows them really well. <laughs> Francis James Child, the Harvard professor who called printed ballads veritable dunghills, made his collection of child ballads in the late 19th century. Many contemporary folk groups have drawn on it. Child consulted printed texts, but claimed oral sources for much of his collection. Patricia Fummerton thinks that in many cases his sources had learned from the printed broadsides about which Professor Child was so snooty. What he claims he did is he claims he went into the countryside and recorded the songs of milkmaids and grandmas by the fireside, and this was the tradition that was preserved orally. But in fact, when you go through his published edition, you see that he's used the printed black letter ballads a lot of the time. They're all through, because where else was he going to get them? There's no evidence that the person who's singing this ballad at the fire didn't actually read it or have someone read it to them or hear it in the alehouse being read by somebody. Collectors like Child defined a folk tradition which they tried to segregate from more commercial cultural streams. It is Patricia Farmerton's contention that commerce and popular culture have been mingled for a very long time. 
broadside ballads were a large-scale commercial undertaking. London printers produced them in quantity. Balladmongers hawked them on the streets. Chapman sold them throughout the countryside. And because they were so widely distributed, they became a common cultural possession. What print does is to disseminate it to a wider group. Guys might have always gathered in alehouses, but now more of them can, are reading the same ballad. And if they move to, if they're traveling from one town to another, they see the same ballad that they can sing with another group. And so the, the possibilities for coalitions and gatherings becomes much larger. And also, of course, for subterfuge and subversion. So the government was constantly trying to ban alehouses because they were spontaneous places that popped up and weren't under regulation. They were very suspicious of them. They were also very suspicious of ballads. They tended to arrest ballad sellers um, regularly. Peddlers, chapmen, they would pick up and, and put in Bridewell Prison, which is a prison for, for vagrants. So you want to attack someone's character, you can get a ballad printed off really quickly without it having go going through the legal processes of being registered in the stationer's office. And you can get thousands of copies disseminated and a whole bunch of people reading it and thinking about it and talking about it, which makes that person very upset <laughs> or a political party very upset. I mean, they can be politically very aggressive, but they tend not to be. They tend to actually end on moral statements. They tend to endorse the establishment at the end. But somewhere in the middle, you often will hear complaints, subtle critiques. So they tend to, to suppress, unless there's an out-and-out -out attack going on against an individual or a political happening like the raising of taxes by the king. And then, you know, then print becomes incredibly important. And print is also really important because that's one of the reasons they're cherished. They're these artifacts. They're not oral only. They are artifacts that, and they're art, that you admire as much for the visual and the physical thing that you can hold in your hand. And print makes that possible, which was really important, that material, which print, I mean, we, we, I, I think we forget because a lot of us see the printed page on the internet or on the computer and we don't think of it as a material thing. But the broadside ballot, one of the wonderful things about it is that you can roll one up, put it in your pocket, and walk away. And you can't even do that with a book. I mean, you can do it with some little books like a quarto or an octavo, which are these teeny books. People are pulling out ballads. You hear stories all the time, someone pulling a ballad out and a crowd gathering around and they start singing it. And that same ballad is moving all around London and out into the provinces. Um, and it couldn't do that if it wasn't being printed by the hundreds of thousands. And that's what print allows, this mass marketing.
The print revolution affected every form of culture. By putting hundreds of thousands of broadside ballads into circulation in England, it amplified popular taste, expressed shared sentiments, and began the weaving of a common culture. But it had just as decisive an effect on more elite cultural pursuits. Julie Cumming is a musician, a professor of the Schulich School of Music at McGill, and a member of the Making Public's research group. Among her interests as a scholar of medieval and Renaissance music is the history of the motet and what happened to it when printed books of motets began to appear. Motets are choral pieces in multiple parts on a sacred text. Their appearance in print in the year 1502 was the work of a Venetian printer by the name of Ottaviano Petrucci. Printing music is complicated because you have to have the staff and the notes. And in fact, you can do a woodblock, and there are a few woodblocks. You can carve out everything. But to do it with movable type, which is a really important thing, because you can reuse the type for each new book. You actually, the way Petrucci did it was he printed the staff, and then on top of that, he printed the notes. It's called double impression printing. They ran the paper through once and did the lines, and then they ran it through again and did the notes. And they had to have what's called a registration. They had to make sure the page was in exactly the same place the second time to get it. Because, of course, if the note's a little bit too high, if it moves from the line to a space, it's not the same note. <laughs> and he did these very, very beautiful prints. So he invented this system and, um, and then printed all these books. And he had the monopoly for 20 years in Venice. So nobody else could come along and do it in Venice for 20 years. Petrucci was a commercial printer and had to sell the motet collections he published. Motets were sung in churches, so there was an established institutional demand. But Julie Cumming thinks that he also anticipated a new market amongst amateurs. What the Petrucci motet prints do is they suddenly make available to these people who want this music but don't have the skills to copy it. They can now buy it in a beautifully printed edition. And so it's making a whole kind of music that's, that some people wanted access to, but they would have had to hire a copyist or something in order to get a good copy. They can now just go into a print shop in Venice and buy it and take it home and sing it with their friends. Singing during the Renaissance was one of the skills that was beginning to be expected of gentlefolk generally. In the courts of Europe, there was a new emphasis on courtesy, polite accomplishments, and the refining of coarse manners. And this extended outside court circles to the emergent middle class as well. The classic manual was Baldessari Castiglioni's The Courtier, begun a few years after Petrucci published his first music books. One of the things it says is that in order to be a good quarter, you have to be musically educated. And you should be able to sing off the book. That means sight sing from a manuscript or a printed book of music with an ensemble. And you should also be able to play the lute and dance and so forth. It's part of a whole set of of skills required of a courtier. But of course, upwardly mobile merchant class people who aspired to higher things would also want to imitate the courtier. So then we have a whole bunch of people who are 
who are interested in learning music uh, in order to function as courtiers within their context uh, and to ape the nobility to improve, improve their social standing. So again, th there's a problem for them acquiring music to s learn to sing from. And these printed books become another, another a place for them to acquire music to improve their musical skills. Printing made music available to groups who would formerly have had no access to it. Its availability in turn fostered such groups. And it's in this way, Julie Cummings says, that music printing can be said to have done something radically new. The existence of printed music makes possible a new kind of public. And so that's the sort of fundamental thing, because it makes available to people who did not have access to it before polyphonic music of all genres, but, you know, I'm focusing on motets, but all genres. So, or at least it's a potential for a public. And the fact that they kept being printed and reprinted and new things suggests that the public did, in fact, emerge, you know, that, that that's kind of the proof in the pudding that they kept managing to keep selling the stuff. But, of course, there had to be a little of a public for the printer to take the risk in the first place. So there is a kind of chicken and egg thing here the public come first, and then who wanted the prints, and then the prints came out, and that enabled a larger public to emerge. So, so that's certainly part of it. I mean, a, another thing that printed music makes possible is talking about music, what some people talk about as a discursive public. So one of the fascinating things that happens is that once the Petrucci prints come out, Music theorists, so those are people writing books about music. Sometimes they're writing about instruction tutors for how to read music, or sometimes they're introducing their own theories about how music is composed or whatever. But music theorists uh, start using Petrucci's books as examples in their treatises. So for the first time, when you could have multiple copies of the same book in different parts of Europe, uh, you could refer to a motet printed in a Petrucci book and have some confidence that a lot of people might have access to a copy of that motet. So then you get a sense that all these people are talking about the same pieces. And then it's possible to actually have a kind of discussion about music that's actually rooted in a repertoire. And so it's a creation of a kind of canon. It's a very, it's a kind of proto-canon. And, uh, and I think this was not intended by Petrucci. I don't think he really imagined this. But it really became a very important part. And that's one reason I think that Josquin became so famous, because he's very prominent in Petrucci's prints. That, so everyone knew these pieces from the Petrucci prints. Josquin was Josquin Desprez, who by the time of his death in 1521 was widely acknowledged as the greatest composer of his age in both sacred and secular genres. He practiced a style of composition that was just coming into its own around the time that music printing began. Julie Cumming doesn't think the one by any means caused the other, but she does think there was a relationship between the new technology and the new musical style. The big thing that happens in musical style is the development of what's called imitation. And that's a style that we know best probably from the Bach fugue, in which each voice comes in one at a time. The voices come in one at a time with the same tune. So it's called imitation because each new voice imitates the one that came before. And so it has two effects. On one hand, it emphasizes repetition. 
because you hear the tune in one voice and then you hear it in the next voice and you hear it in the next voice and you hear it in the next voice. So that same tune, and it's usually associated with a text phrase. The first motet at the beginning of the first book of motets printed by Petrucci is Josquin's Ave Maria. And the soprano starts, Ave Ma, and then the tenor comes in, Ave, and the, ten, and the alto comes in, Ave, and the bass comes in, Ave. So you hear that, Ave Maria, you hear that four times. And you really know that tune. You know, you can take it home with you, you've got it in your head, you can walk out of the hall whistling, okay? So there's a new emphasis on repetition. But there's also a new emphasis on independence of voices. Because the voices aren't all starting at the same time and saying the same text at the same time. Now the repetition, I think, actually, in one article I wrote, I almost called it a kind of dumbing down of music. Because it does make it much easier to remember because you've heard a lot of those tunes quite a lot of times. So that makes it more accessible to a larger public. <laughs> but the other, on the other hand, there's also an increased complexity of texture and a variety of texture. Texture meaning how the different voices in the polyphonic work interact with each other. So there's a wonderful kind of balance between complexity and simplicity in this music. And so while that change starts before music printing, I think that actually its appeal, the fact that it was easier to remember and easier to appreciate, made it more of a natural for music printing. In other words, you could be more confident that people would want to buy it and more, want to sing it. And then as it became much more popular, then it sort of explodes. So that the new style facilitated the, the possibility of selling your music prints. And then once you had a public for your music prints, then they kind of feed on each other. The new music of the early 16th century balanced imitation and individuality, simplicity and complexity. Printing did not create this style, Julie Cummings says, but it suited the new medium. And when music printing was perfected around 1500, they advanced together. The new style in music also presents an interesting metaphor, though I suspect Professor Cumming would not like me to lean too hard on it, for the world that printing made possible. On the one hand, there was increased repetition, as the presses turned out more copies of the same thing and people could sing the same ballad from Newcastle to Bristol. On the other hand, there was greater individuality, as readers and singers discovered new dimensions of themselves in the worlds that print put into their hands. Next time on The Origins of the Modern Public, I'll continue my exploration of the work of the Making Publics Project with a program on painting and the ways in which painting made publics in the Dutch Republic of the 17th century. Here's a short preview from art historian Angela Van Halen. One thing that's crucial is the art market. That the, Because the church is no longer a great patron of the arts, because there's no court and monarch and not a real strong aristocracy in the Dutch Republic, art 
increasingly is sold on an open market. So that there are art dealers, there are art shops. People would go to artist studios to buy paintings. So they're trying to sort of come up with things that would appeal to a broad market, to a broad audience. They're trying to attract buyers on an open market. And so art becomes less expensive. These are A lot of these paintings are fairly small, and so they're affordable. So you have a lot of art just in private homes, in domestic interiors. The art market and the public sphere, next time on The Origins of the Modern Public. On Ideas, you've listened to The Origins of the Modern Public by David Cayley. His series continues tomorrow night. It's also available as a podcast at cbc.ca slash podcasting. Production was by David Cayley, Dave Field, and Bernie Lucht. To find out about upcoming Ideas programs, you can sign up for our weekly newsletter. Go to cbc.ca slash ideas and follow the links. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht. I'm Paul Kennedy. The Hourly News is next on CBC Radio 1 and on Sirius Satellite Radio.